Well, good morning. We're so glad that you're joining us here this morning, whether in Ajax, Bowmanville, Port Perry, in the province of Ontario, or actually, as we keep finding out, many of you watching around the world, good morning to you. This is the end of this very significant series that again has transformed and, and changed the trajectory of many of our lives in our church. But what has uniquely happened in the last three weeks will help form how we end this series. In the last month, we have been inundated uh, somewhat unexpectedly with prophecy over the church. And as we've been receiving almost 30 pages now of words across our community to all the sites, almost every single one of them is saying the same thing along three or four themes. And the most prominent thing that has been submitted, and remember, none of these people are talking to each other. No one knows this is taking place. They're submitting this. The most prominent call has been for personal holiness. And I just want to start this message today by reading a small sample of the many words that have been given. These are unfiltered. They're just as they are. Here's the first one. One wrote, there's a season coming of calling people to a new level of personal holiness. There's a need to purge ourselves of the idols of Toronto to minister to the people of Toronto. Another person wrote another week, I have a vision in my mind of brown dirt banks on the left and the right, and there's a thicker and higher dirt wall at the end which broke open and out rushed water. And when that happened, I heard this phrase, living water. Unbeknownst this person, another person submitted these words, lack of repentance is holding back the floodgate of water. I saw something holding back a lot of water, like, like a dam, and God said, I want to move greatly among you, C4, in humility. All of us must repent and walk in a new form of holiness. Do not be afraid, the person wrote. Know all these things. Uh, God is grace. Repent, God says, I will move profoundly in this church for this region. Another person wrote these words. There was a picture in my mind of a little town like you'd see in Kansas. Farmhouses were everywhere, and there was a massive tornado coming towards the little farmhouses, and it looked massive and so powerful, it would easily destroy all the homes, but as it passed over each home, it had the opposite effect. The houses that had tattered siding and peeling paint and dirty and nasty yards and gardens suddenly were shiny and new after the tornado came by. What had the potential to destroy actually brought great restoration to these homes. And I believe this person wrote, this is the symbol of the Spirit of God coming in power. He has come to destroy sin, disunity, brokenness, and all the other bad and evil parts of our lives and restore us and make us new. Another person wrote these words, there will be turmoil, turmoil, but I see you. Satan is attacking you. I will protect you. And then again, remember the context. The dam will burst, the person wrote, and many thousands will be set free. I cannot be contained for long. Trust in me, God says, I am good. There's a season of growth coming. I'm very close. I will guide, guide you. But the duty is to encourage all of those around you to seek repentance and holiness. Another person wrote, I sense the Lord reminding me of what he's been saying to me for months, that myself first, then C4, and all believers need to fear the Lord more than we fear the enemy. That is, not being in alignment with God should elicit more fear among us than dealing with the enemy, because God says in the scriptures, I am the Lord. The person writes, I'm reminded of the countless accounts in scripture where the wrath of God was severe, Ananias and Sapphira, Lot's wife, and then they wrote, holy fire is coming, hot, and so be aligned. Like a warning, this will happen to you if you choose not to obey. And, and they keep coming and growing, by the way. Now, this is amazing because right after our Easter series, our next series is the Ten Commandments. 
And it's almost like the Lord is saying very specifically seasonally to our church. It's like now you know your spiritual gifts and now you know what I've equipped you with and now you know even the limits or the power I'm giving each one of you. Now there must be a commitment to a deep, unknown, personal holiness. You must worship me and you cannot grieve my spirit because if you grieve my spirit, the power around the gifts dim and then I cannot do what I want to do through you. In other words, holiness is directly connected to how much transformation will take place through the gifts. But also this is a very helpful way to end this transformational series because it actually brings up one last major issue that I wanted to address. What's the difference between spiritual gifts, spiritual disciplines, and a group of other experiences that don't fit those two categories, which now we call in the modern Christian vernacular, revival? So so let me summarize like this, and I'm going to hopefully tie all of this in a bow and see what God does. Disciplines, as we found it, spiritual holy habits are open to all Christians. They're, they're normative, they're expected. It's a normal Christian life thing. Christian spiritual gifts are also expected and normative, but they're sovereignly assigned. God chooses what part we all play. But again, what about the other experiences that don't fall into either category? What do we actually do with revival? How is revival different than gifts and disciplines? How does that change our expectations? And since actually disciplines and gifts are normative, is revival guaranteed too? Now, if you take time to read your Bible at all, you'll see something if you look very close. Many people that knew God their whole lives, lived for him, loved him, were faithful in the boring, bad, and good times, had to seek repentance, knew him, suddenly met their God in a more profound, tangible, unexpected, overwhelming way. From the shepherds at Jesus' birth to Elijah on Mount Carmel to Isaiah's call, all of them are examples of what heaven does when it touches earth, a foretaste of, of course, what is to permanently come. And again, the modern word we use for that now is revival, which means, by the way, to duplicate life, to have the God that we worship and sing to and give to and live for and speak about and speak on behalf of suddenly come so close to his people with such power, with such a palpability that the life of the people and the life of the church and then the community around the church begins to have dramatic encounters with God and seekers who are not seeking God or want to seek God but cannot find God start finding him because of what takes place first in God's people. You'll know that heaven is touching earth. You'll know revival's happening to you when everything that you know about intellectually suddenly becomes much more fully experienced. I've, I've preached this before, but let me do it again. Listen to some definitions by others about revival. It was Stephen Olford that simply said, revival is a sovereign act of God in which he restores his own backsliding people to repentance, faith, and obedience. You could call that something else, personal holiness. Charles Finney wrote, it's the return of the church from her backsliding and it's the conversion of sinners. Richard Owen Robert once wrote, it is an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. Or Duncan Campbell, the famed leader who led the revival in a part of Scotland, simply says, revival is a community saturated with God. Now, here at C4, because some of you have no church background, some of you come from different church backgrounds, and some of you have been with us for a while, there are different words that are used. Renewal, revival, and awakening are all interchanged. Here's how we use them here. Renewal is when one person in our community has a personal revival experience, and God comes close and changes their life dramatically. Revival is when actually the Spirit of God lightens on the whole church, and all of the church, the whole community, has an encounter with God en masse. An awakening is when the wider society is impacted through mass conversion and life change. 
Now, one of the best passages that outlines this unique work of God in the area that we now call revival is called the transfiguration of Jesus. If you've got a Bible here today, virtual or physical, doesn't matter. We're going to be in Matthew 17. But what happens just before this event is so incredibly important. Jesus is walking with Peter and the other 11, and he asks them a question that, of course, every single one of us needs to ask in our own lives. And especially if you are guests or seekers or skeptics here today or unbelievers here today, this, this part is for you. Uh, Jesus is walking. It says in Matthew 16, 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who, who do people say that I am? Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some, of you think, some people think you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others think you're Jeremiah or just one of the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus stops and says, but who do you say that I am? What about you? And Simon Peter responded, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, again, if you're a seeker or a skeptic here today, you need to lean in and remember something contextually. Simon Peter is an Orthodox Jew speaking to his rabbi, and he goes way farther than what's allowed. He says, you're not just a prophet. You're not just a spiritual teacher. You're not just a political revolutionary. You're not just a brilliant person. You're not just one incarnation of God. You're not just spiritual. You're not just a great religious teacher among many great religious teachers. You're not just one path to God. You're not crazy. You're not liar. You're not Satan. You are the Messiah. Christ. You are the long-awaited one. And oh, by the way, you're not just the fulfillment of the whole Jewish faith. You are the son of the living God. And this is the implication in Judaism. You are the one that has seen God face to face before you existed here on earth. So you can speak with an authority that actually is above all of us because your identity and being is actually in God. Because actually, weirdly as this is, you are God. You are Emmanuel, God with us. So after that confession, that truth that has rocked the ages, that has brought hope to billions of us, but has become a stumbling block and a major issue of offense for many more, then and only then does God decide to do this next little thing, to pull back the veil and actually begin to help them understand who's really in front of them. They've walked with Jesus for three years, seen him heal, raise people back from the dead, introduce profound new teaching, clarify the Old Testament. They have never seen someone like this, but what's about to take place next is going to actually translate all of it in a deeper way. So it says in Matthew 17, 1, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, I've said this before, let me say that again. When you see that phrase in six days or after six days, it should send up all sorts of Old Testament flares for us. God created the universe in six days, reality, beauty, color, life, and he said it was good. In six days, God spoke and existence came to be. And so the implication is that there is a new creation, a new thing's about to take place, and it's through Jesus's perfect life, death, resurrection, and ascension, a new creation will not only bring us back into relationship with God, but would single, signal the beginning of the end that through Jesus somehow Eden is going to be restored and all things are going to be made right. But it's not just about creation. Remember, this is a Jewish community, and so after six days would actually make a direct correlation to Moses and his personal encounter with God when he got the Ten Commandments. Listen to Exodus 24, verse 15, and, and I want you to pay very close attention to today to this verse, but this group of verses, because you're going to see so much of the parallels. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. And for six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. And to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. 
So notice in this context, Jesus takes up the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He takes them up. He leads them up. They have no plate, no understanding of what's going to happen. They don't say, oh, we're going to go have a revival now. Let's set up a tent. No, no. They just, they're walking up. They're expecting nothing at all. And they follow Jesus like this for three years. So this is a normal, boring, everyday deal with Jesus. And Peter, James, and John are up on a high mountain And I love the humanity and the honesty of scripture because in the Luke account, it says that they went up to pray. And in Luke 9, it says, as they're praying, they start falling asleep. Of course they do. Their eyes are closing, the dreams, they're losing the battle. Jesus is praying. They're supposed to be praying. They're like, oh God, right? They're going down. And suddenly, as they're losing the battle of spiritual disciplines of prayer to sleep, suddenly the heavens rip open and all five senses are put on alert and it simply says in Matthew 17, 2, there Jesus was transfigured before them. Now, what does transfigured mean? It means Jesus was changed in appearance. It's where we get our modern word metamorphosis from. He is transformed. He is seen as he fully is, fully human and fully God. These three get a glimpse of Jesus as seen in heaven. Jesus, the Christ, the son of God is now manifest for the senses, palpably understood and God's heavenly splendor shows up. It says that his face, Jesus' face, shone like the sun. His clothes became whiter as light. Mark records it like this in Mark 9.3. Jesus' clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. So for a brief moment, the veil is lifted and they see fully. And Jesus and his clothing become gleaming and glittering and glistening, brighter than any modern light we have even invented. And what's even more disturbing and wonderful is it says that the light is emanating not just from above him, but is basically emanating from within him out. Which would, of course, remind us that God is the source of light and he's the creator of light. And and also that Jesus is burning in this white sort of experience reminds us he is pure and without sin. He's perfect. That's why Jesus could die in my place and your place and deal with the impurity we all have. Because only perfection can overcome imperfection. See, if Jesus isn't perfect, he's part of the problem, not the solution to it. You can't be the savior of the world if you need saving yourself. So Jesus, all of this is being demonstrated. And back to the story, Peter, James, and John are looking on as their vision is adjusting to this heavenly light. They now see two others standing with Jesus. These are the two most famous people in Jewish faith and history. They're the fathers of the faith. They've heard about these two people their whole lives. Even in womb, they would have heard this as mothers would have preached and said the Torah. Just then appearing before them was Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, with Jesus standing there, these two men, if you know their stories, one of them, both of them actually ended their lives in supernatural ways. Both of them were great leaders who talked to God on Mount Sinai, but there's more. Moses is the late great lawgiver, the one that leads Israel out of Egypt and was given the Ten Commandments and knew God as a friend knows a friend. Elijah was the greatest miracle worker in the whole Old Testament and in Jewish faith came to represent every prophet in the Old Testament. And here's what's being declared, that the great lawgiver and also the great person of miracles are here to testify and witness that the one standing between them is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. The whole Old Testament, history, allegory, poetry, prophecy was to prepare the world for Jesus' coming. And the law and the prophets are now saying that he is the fulfillment of everything they were about. 
Their job was to show us our sin and our need for an external savior. And now they are pointing as heaven and earth are literally kissing, as as the heavens are shattered. They're saying that Jesus, this 33-year-old carpenter guy, is God in flesh. He is about to do a greater exodus and greater miracles are going to be done through him. Well, in this moment, Peter responds. And he says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Oh, and if you wish, just suggesting... I'd like to put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, don't miss this, because a lot of us do. Peter calls Jesus Lord. He usually calls him rabbi, teacher, or master, but he goes much further now. Lord is a name for God in the Old Testament. And so he is declaring something about Jesus, again, that is blasphemy or true. And in the confusion, Peter says, this is so epic and this is so great. Our Jewish prayers are answered. We want it all now. This is everything we've ever wanted. And we we just, let's live here. We don't want to go back to boring. And we don't want to go back to mundane. And we don't want to go back to school. And we don't want to go back to six-day work weeks. And we don't want to deal with sickness anymore. And we don't want to deal with family drama. And we don't want to deal with the Romans. And I don't don't care about Twitter and politics anymore. And and I don't want to deal with war anymore. And I'm so tired of disease. And I'm so tired of demons. And then, Jesus, you keep yammering on about dying and death. You don't need to do this. This is the deal. It's happening right now. Let's live here. Never forget again, I'm going to keep saying this. Peter, James, and John are good Orthodox Jews. Everything that Jews have wanted for 4,000 years is right in front of them. Moses, Elijah, and the Messiah. If you fly to Israel today and go to the Wailing Wall, Orthodox Jews are still praying for this to take place. And these three men are seeing the fulfillment of everything they've ever wanted their whole lives and their parents and their grandparents and their great-great-grandparents all the way back to Abraham. This is the deal right here. And these guys, these uneducated fishermen, they get to see it. And they're like, we're going nowhere. I'm sitting here. And then Peter, right, says, I want to go to Mount Equipment Co-op, buy three tents. This is going to be great. We're going to work this out. I love what one old preacher said once. He said, isn't it shocking that Peter thinks the tents should all be in equal place? That somehow that Moses and Elijah have equal standing to Jesus. So as Peter's working on the strategic plan to stay in revival and camp out forever and not have to deal with reality anymore and just have all the fulfillment of all the amazing thing, suddenly God interrupts Peter. Huh. And it says, while he was still speaking, as Peter is pontificating, it says a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud spoke. Now, I've preached this many times before. Let me do it again. The history of this cloud is central. I've joked about this. When we think about clouds, we think about puffy things and snuggly ads and cream cheese. No. This cloud is the Shekinah glory of God, the dwellingness of God. It is the Holy Spirit himself. And every description of this cloud in the Bible is terrifying, brilliance, glory, fire, the overwhelming holiness of God himself palpably experienced for all five senses. The very, one of the very first times we see this is when Moses de- dedicates the tabernacle in Exodus 40, 34, and the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When Solomon dedicated the temple later, 1 Kings 8, 10, when the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priest could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Ezekiel 1.4, and I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by brilliant light, and the center of the fire looked like glowing metal. 
When Jesus was born and the angels announced this to the shepherds, it says in Luke 2, 9, and the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were what? Terrified. When the church was born in Acts 2, it says, suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting, and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. See, we need to get this cloud right. It matters. The cloud is full of God's glory and light and lightning, and most importantly, it is marked by fire, and fire is flashing out of it. And it is out of this incredibly overwhelming, dangerous moment that actually a voice, the voice of God the Father speaks. And he says, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. You listen to him. Let me again say this to you today. If you're a seeker or a skeptic here today, God is speaking to you in this moment. God the Father through his word is saying to you right now, you listen to my son. Jesus is not who you think he is. He is more than, he, than you think he is. You listen to him. You go to the scriptures and read about him. For when you encounter Jesus the son, your life will be transformed. So we have God in his fullness. The spirit of God now in the form of the cloud given to affirm Jesus' identity, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And when just like at Jesus' baptism, we have God the Father's voice, the Son of God in flesh, the spirit of the God is now present. We have the reality of the Trinity, one God found yet in three persons in holy community. And what does God say? You listen to my son. And what's the reaction of the disciples? When they heard this, they fell down, face down, and they were what? Terrified. Terrified. In that moment, they know God is God and they are not. In that moment, they know that they have a beginning and an end and the thing that they're encountering does not. In that moment, they understand how profoundly sinful and far away they are and how God is not sinful. See, when God moves in profound, palpable ways for his glory and our freedom, so we pushed out to others, the very first thing that always happens is this. Humans realize they are not God and how unholy we really are. John later, the same John who experiences this at 90 years old, when he's actually being persecuted for being a Christian in exile, is given the book of Revelation and it says that when he turned around and saw his best friend Jesus glorified at 90 years old, he fell over. That's a geriatric moment. But why did he fall over? Because he was old? No, because when God shows up in power, you go down. What did Isaiah, who was a prophet of God, what happened to Isaiah who loved God and was orthodox and right before God? It says in Isaiah 6, 5, he cried out, woe to me, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The work of God encountering him after you know him in a personal way, when this takes place, is full of terror, euphoria, fear, and adoration. And so when they fell over and they were terrified and overwhelmed and shaking, Jesus came and touched them and said, get up. And then he said these great, amazing words, do not be what? Afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. See, in real moments of a real revival that is not staged but is genuine, the holiness of God will undo every single person and the love of God will restore every single person all in one moment. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. And as soon as all of this happens, it's all over. 
I mean, what a letdown, all the emotion, the adrenaline, the cool factor, the ego boost, glimpsing eternity, you get to see everything. I mean, Peter, James, and John saw more than Moses ever did in his lifetime or Elijah, like this is everything. And then if you read the story, it gets really depressing because after this moment, they walk down a mountain and they go back to their friends and their friends are trying to cast out a demon and they don't have enough faith and the pastors think they're heretics and they're from the devil and everyone's yelling and everyone's upset and the Romans are still killing people and they go back down the mountain out of this profound experience back to seeing the kingdom of God slowly take ground. And if you're taking notes, just write this down. Revival happens for a season to be sent back out to do more for the kingdom of God over a lifetime. So here's what we need to wrestle down now. What's the difference between what we've just read and gifts and disciplines and why does this matter to us and what do we do with what it seems the Spirit of God is literally saying to our church? Well, number one, let me just say from history and from Scripture, when a real genuine move of God, a revival takes place, there is always a mass conversion of people to Jesus. It always turns into awakening. But a common mistake made in many churches is to pair the unusual manifestations or outworkings during a revival to the gifts that are normal in everyday life. As we've learned, spiritual disciplines are for all of us to exercise and and be transformed. Spiritual gifts are sovereignly inside and normative day in and day out. In other words, the last 10 weeks of this series is what a normal Christian life and a normal Christian church looks like. But revival is not normal. It is not always. It is not guaranteed and neither are the results. Much of the time during revival, there is greater power, the presence of God is more present, and that means the disciplines are used more and the power behind the gifts for a season might get stronger. But revivals are started with God and revivals are ended by God. And these seasons, like I said, are given to send us out and to sustain us over a lifetime. So you cannot pair one experience with the other. Some revivals last for days, some last for months or years. So here's the question, should, should we pray for a revival? Should we ask for a revival since God's the one who starts it? Should we be expectant? Oh, absolutely. Now, if we go before God and say, would you revive your church? Would you pour yourself out? Would you do the transfigure thing, transfiguration thing among us? And he says, no or not yet. That does not affect the gifts at all, nor does it affect the disciplines that are modeled. But this should help us understand right expectations. And by the way, this distinction is not abstract. On one hand, many churches that, that did have a real work of God in the past, they ca- try to keep replicating it. They want to set up tents. And one of the most difficult things in a church is when God's sovereign move comes to an end to accept that time is done and just to go back to holy habits and normal Christian life and spiritual gifts and acts to and good old common faithfulness. Can God do something new? Of course he can, but he might not. On the other hand, many of us from the other side of the conversation have never asked to see if Jesus does want to bring a profound revival, to see if there is a promise from the Father given to pray back. And many of us actually don't want to pray for revival because of fear, because of ungodly control, because we like our comfort too much or sin, or we're just so busy with Netflix and everything else, we never even considered it. My point is, there is one set of experiences and expectations for revival, and there's another for everyday life. Now, for a time, they confuse together if God chooses, but not necessarily. It would be wise for all of us to understand this and never confuse this and make sure that our expectations are always anchored in Jesus more than anything else. But, but, if revival is given to a local church or to a group of churches or to a city or a nation, what happens? Here's what happens. 
The very first thing that takes place when a revival takes place is the people who are genuine followers of Jesus are willing to be led up the mountain by Jesus. That's our only part. And much of the time, the people who are about to be led up the mountain do not even know it's about to take place. Second, understand this. Jesus says, Peter, James, and John, you come with me up here. Uh, God says to Moses, you come up here and I'm going to speak to you. In other words, it is sovereign when he says, I want to bring you up. It is not guaranteed. You cannot say scripturally, God is going to bring revival to every church. It's just not in there. The third thing that happens is, if it is his will, he will reveal himself in great measure. And the transfiguration moment will lead to being transfixed on Jesus in a way that most of us have never experienced. Fourthly, we will become terrified. When real revival happens among Christians, among those who are already followers, we become terrified, we begin confessing our sin, we begin to know our need, and what's very interesting during all moves of God is pain, sin, and hiddenness are immediately brought from the back of our life to the front of our life and start getting out of us. Fifth, the Holy Spirit will come in great power. The cloud, the fire, the dove comes and gives the church for a period of time an extraordinary movement producing extraordinary results. Devotional lives go through the roof. People want to take communion. People would never imagine not coming to church or not reading the scriptures or not going to connect group. There is this almost God-given obsession of being close to where God is. Marriages that are dead come back to life. It's amazing if you read revival history that there's always a children boom after a revival because marriages are so... uh, repaired and healed, the sex life of a community is radically changed. Friendships that have been broken are restored. People that hate each other and don't talk to each other among churches or between leaders, they are restored. The Spirit of God begins to equip and people begin to celebrate. They run towards worship. And during that time, the exaltation of Jesus will be so unbelievably strong. He will almost be the only thing you care about for a period. So C4, here's the question that must be honestly asked without any manipulation or inappropriate emotion. Is Jesus leading this church up the mountain or not? Because if he's not leading us up the mountain, that shouldn't discourage us at all because actually, by the way, he's given us his spirit. We do have salvation. We know Jesus Christ. We have his disciplines and we have his gifts and much needs to be done. But I do need to say to you today, with some authority, that the answer is, yes, he is. We've talked about this for years in this church. Some of you have just joined us. Some of you have been with us on the whole journey. Jesus has been walking us up a mountain for a while. Back in September, I summarized the story that we have been given nine key promises over now a 10-year period each one of them tested to make sure that it was not the demonic speaking or our own desires, but from the Lord. We've preached on them, and actually we'd say over the last 10 years, there have been seasons where it has been partly experienced. And by the way, if you weren't part or you forget this, I'd encourage everyone to go back to September 9th, 2018, where we outlined the history of this. But I want to just summarize it like this. The the three critical promises given to this church are 2 Chronicles 5, 2 Corinthians 5, and Zechariah 8. And when we, and again, in the last four weeks, started getting inundated with all these words, again, what's eerie, what's wonderful, what's terrifying, what's beautiful, is they all line up with all the promises we've been given for 10 years. 
And I want to make this very clear as I now come to an end. C4 is not better than any other church. It doesn't matter because we're more organized or irrelevant. This is God's sovereign decision. And since God is doing a very unique thing here, and he has been for a while, but as it is growing in profundity and uniqueness, we must wake up as a church and realize what is actually we are stewarding and what is happening to us. When we were first given the promise that revival would come, we weren't looking for it. And it wasn't even in our vocabulary, really. When we were given 2 Chronicles 5, this was the promise that the Holy Spirit would be poured out across the whole church. It comes out of that dedication passage. And the key verses in verse 13, the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud because the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Right when we were given that verse, within five minutes, another verse was given out of 2 Corinthians 5. In other words, if 2 Chronicles 5 was God saying, I am going to uniquely pour out my spirit on C4 as a whole as a church, I'm going to give my spirit and all the priests will be overwhelmed. The next thing he says, and this is what it will feel like. This will be the theme of the move. 2 Corinthians 5.8, I am confident, we are confident, I say, we'd prefer to be away from the body at home with Jesus. And we will make it our goal to please Jesus, whether we're at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Jesus. So each one of us may receive what is due us for the things done to the body, whether good or bad. In other words, here's what the implication was all these years ago. As God's presence grows more and more, as he takes us up the mountain more and more, the lordship of Jesus would grow exponentially among us. This sovereign move of God, this revival in the true sense will be marked for a love of Jesus beyond all things and the kingship of Jesus will be welcomed and accepted. Do you know what another name for that is? Personal holiness. It's what Paul wrote, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There is a promise and there is a mark. And for a decade, we have been praying this back to God. But as we were continuing to pray and we had all these moments took place, there was one last promise given out of Zechariah 8, and I'm not going to preach through it because we did it in September, but Zechariah 8 was the actual map, what it will not just look like, what will happen, it will, sorry, it's not just what will take place or what the feel will be, it will be what looks like, such as many prodigals will turn home, the church will become multicultural overnight. Nations and cities will start coming to this church to seek God. Ten people will grab the hem of one person and say, we must go with you. We do not understand why we're coming with you, but we have heard God is with you. We must encounter him. And what's amazing is, in the last three years, much of this has already started to take place. So, here's how we're going to end this sermon and end this series. For ten weeks, God has spoken to us beautifully helped us talk in community about our gifts and disciplines and Jesus is our model. We've come week after week, thousands of us now, and had our gifts prayed over. We've prayed for the character of God. We've confessed, confessed gift tension. We've tried reconciling with each other. Last week, amazingly, when we were talking about celibacy in our culture, all sorts of people came up and just very humbly confessed sexual sin. I mean, just incredible moments. But here's how we're going to go today. Here's how we're going to do this. In every auditorium, in every site, uh, we're going to, I'm going to pray. 
and then we're going to sing a song. And when the song is done, the host at your site will come up and they'll end the service. And like we've done for 10 weeks, we're going to invite people forward for prayer. But there's going to be no one here. (laughs) Not an elder, not a pastor, uh, not a prayer person. We'll be hovering, but we won't be here. And here's what we're going to say to the church. I started this message by saying that for the last four weeks, we've been being given words, small p prophecy for the church, all about personal holiness. And every single one of the prophecies is basically saying that as people commit to personal holiness and invite the Holy Spirit to do a work in them, living water will be released. So we're going to invite anyone up who wants to come forward to Jesus, because we don't want to be here. This is you to the living God of heaven and earth, found through Jesus through the Spirit. And you come forward and say, if you're speaking to C4, for real, and you're promising a greater move among us, then I want you to do something in me. I want personal holiness. And you can come and you can convict me of anything. You can just undo me, Lord. So just come forward and say, I'd like that. And then you could also come forward and say, Lord, you've promised this church a move of God that is not manufactured. It's from you. And you've given all these promises. I'm just going to ask you to move across C4 in genuine transfiguration-like revival. So we're just going to say, after the song's done, you come forward, you can kneel, you can stand. This does not have to be a long-term 20-minute moment. You can literally walk forward and just say, Lord, I want personal holiness. Do this in me. I want a purity I don't have. Come Holy Spirit, come. Or you can come forward and say that plus renew the church, bring revival or bring awakening. You can spend an hour up here. You can kneel, you can stand, you can come very quickly. You're like, I've got kids. I know, I do too. Just come forward for two seconds and pray. But this is gonna be a moment, a non-manipulated moment where we as the church across all three sites in preparation for the fourth site in plan two, ask the Lord to do what he's already promised. This is not asking us, and we're not asking God to do something and we're not sure about it. He's spoken C4. He does not lie. So this is a holy moment. So I'm just gonna ask you, would you stand? I'm gonna pray. The song that we're about to sing is to prepare us and then we're going to see what the Lord does. So let's pray this way. Lord, number one, we acknowledge you're God and we're not. (laughs) and you're good and you're kind, and we thank you for the holiness of God, and we thank, thank you for the love of God. And honestly, Lord, we're sinful, broken people, and there's a lot of sin in us, there is. And I don't even think we all know, I don't know the depths of it, but you do. So, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit, profoundly, at every site, to everyone watching online, even to other leaders and people who are watching in other churches. And would you bring personal holiness? Would there be an alignment, a fire that burns to the church? Actually, we claim what God is. God is a holy fire and he's a purifying, he's a consuming fire. So just come and burn away all the impurities supernaturally in our lives. And then we're gonna pray and Lord lead us. We're praying for revival, real 2 Chronicles 5, 2 Corinthians 5, Zechariah 8 revival where thousands of people would encounter Jesus Christ and thousands more would come to Jesus after we've met the one we love. So Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit. We pray for the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven.
Amen.